I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to part eight of Hamlet. Grab your copy of Hamlet, turn to Act 5, Scene 1, and we'll start. And Act 5 of Hamlet is where things start getting really good. And by really good, I mean incredibly weird. When Act 5 starts, everything is out on the table. Hamlet knows that Claudius wants to kill him. Claudius knows that Hamlet wants to kill him. And all these characters are coming back together at last. There's no avoiding the big questions of the play anymore. Someone's going to have to win, and someone's going to have to lose. And it's going to happen soon. But just as all of this is coming back together, Act 5 starts with one of the weirdest scenes in theater. And I think we forget it's so weird because it's so famous. It is, after all, the gravedigger scene from Hamlet. Because, you know, whenever you're coming back into town from almost being executed in England and being captured by pirates on your way to your showdown with your evil uncle, you just stop by a graveyard to have a conversation. Because remember, the last thing we heard from Hamlet was him swearing that he'd get his revenge, that his thoughts would be bloody or they'd be worth nothing. And the last thing we heard from Claudius and Laertes was their plan to kill Hamlet. So while all of Act 4, and arguably the entire play, has been building up to this moment of confrontation, Shakespeare puts it off. Because instead of seeing Hamlet and his enemies enter to face off, what you get is two clowns with shovels. Really, if you didn't know this play, that would be super weird. And because a lot of people know this play, and because it's famous, we usually think of these two weird characters that enter at the beginning of this scene as the gravediggers. But in most texts, they're listed as clowns. And as we've talked about before, everyone in Shakespeare's company had a type. You know, the romantic lead, the ingenue, the old man, the villain. And one of the most important types was the clown. Now, obviously, we know what a clown's job is in a comedy, but you couldn't just leave these guys out of the company during a tragedy. So you'll notice that almost all of Shakespeare's tragedies have some role for a comedian in them. The Porter in Macbeth, the most important one being probably the Fool in King Lear. These are both later plays. And in Hamlet, it's this first gravedigger character. So it may have begun out of necessity, but it turns into something incredibly interesting in this play. But before we get to the really interesting part, we have to get to the goofy part, which is a straight-up comic relief scene. You have these two totally new characters coming on stage with shovels. Maybe they throw open a hatch in the stage. And they start. The first one says, Is she to be buried in Christian burial when she willfully seeks her own salvation? So they actually start with a question of theology. So are we going to give a full Christian burial to someone who willfully seeks her own salvation? What he's talking about is suicide, presumably Ophelia's suicide. But he probably screws up that last word. Instead of salvation, it should probably be its opposite, which is damnation. Because remember, suicides went directly to hell. It was a mortal sin. So someone who willfully seeks their own damnation, or even salvation, is someone who kills themselves. And why is this an issue for Christian burial? Because suicides were mortal sinners, so they weren't allowed to be buried in sanctified ground and with full ceremony and rites. And if, in fact, he screws up this last word, the character he probably most resembles is Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing, who's always using the opposite of the word he means. So the second guy answers his question, I tell thee she is. She is to be buried that way. Therefore, make her grave straight. This has nothing to do with it being a curvy grave. It means make it straight away at once. Start digging, buddy. And why? Because the crowner hath sat on her and finds it Christian burial. Crowner is just another way of saying coroner, the person who decides on the cause of death. And he hath sat on her, not literally, of course. It means that he's held a hearing or inquest into the circumstances of her death. And finds it, in other words, rules it or judges it to be a Christian burial. Maybe he ruled it an accident instead of a deliberate suicide. And the first guy is confused. He says, how can that be unless she drowned herself in her own defense? He's got a point, although it's a pretty messed up point. Did she drown herself to try to save herself? And all the second guy can say is, why, tis found so. 
Like, I don't know, buddy. That's what they ruled. So the first guy says, it must be se offendendo. It cannot be else. Oh, this is a guy who thinks he knows Latin and law. Great. But of course, he screwed it up again. There is a Latin term se defendendo, which means in self-defense. It's a way you can argue to get out of a murder, for example. But this guy messes it up. It's se offendendo, like self-offense. But he's pretty sure of himself. So he says, it cannot be else. It cannot be any other way. And so he backs it up. He says, for here lies the point. If I drown myself wittingly, it argues an act. And an act hath three branches. It is to act, to do, and to perform. Ergal, she drowned herself wittingly. So just listening to it, you can hear kind of the fake lawyer talk. So here's the point, he says. If I drown myself wittingly, in other words, knowingly, knowing what I'm doing, it argues an act. Argues means it's evidence of. It indicates that this was an act. Well, yeah. And an act hath three branches. In other words, three parts. It is, he says, to act, to do, and to perform. Never mind that those all mean exactly the same thing. Ergal, he says, which he probably gets from mishearing the word ergo, which means therefore in Latin, she drowned herself wittingly. Never mind that that doesn't follow from anything he just said. It's just a bunch of legalese that he kind of dreamed up. And the second guy kind of catches on to that. He says, nay, but hear you, Goodman Delver. Hear you means you listen to me. And Delver is another word for a digger. So it's like calling him Mr. Gravedigger, which will have to be his name for our purposes. That seems to indicate, too, that this second guy is not actually a gravedigger, but maybe a guy who maintains the churchyard or something? I don't know. Usually you just see him as another gravedigger, but it'd be interesting to see them having different jobs. So he's trying to get the first guy to listen to him, but he won't let him. He says, give me leave. In other words, give me permission to keep talking. And he's going to keep laying out his case. He says, here lies the water. Good. Here stands the man. Good. So he's just laying out the geography. Like, over here is a body of water. Over here is the man. Everybody following? If the man go to this water and drown himself, it is willy-nilly, he goes. Mark you that. So we still have that phrase willy-nilly. It comes from these words, will he, nil he, which means whether he intends to or not. So whether he means to or not, if this guy goes over to the water and drowns himself, he goes, presumably, intentionally. Mark you that. Pay attention to that. But if the water come to him and drown him, he drowns not himself. So if the water somehow gets up and goes over and drowns him, he's not responsible for his own death. Ergal, he that is not guilty of his own death, shortens not his own life. There's that word ergal again, his botched version of ergo. He that is not guilty of his own death, shortens not his own life. Those are just synonyms for each other again. He hasn't actually drawn any conclusion, but he sounds real nice. And so the second guy asks, but is this law? And the first guy assures him, I marryest, crowner's quest law. Marry again being short for I swear by Mary is, in other words, it is law. What kind of law? Crowner's quest law. Crowner's quest meaning coroner's inquest law. This is exactly the law the coroners used to decide who did and didn't kill themselves. He says, making it up. And the second guy is either impressed or sort of done with this guy. And he says, will you have the truth on it? In other words, will you have, will you hear the truth about it? If this had not been a gentlewoman, she should have been buried out of Christian burial. Well, now this actually is a truth. If she hadn't been a gentlewoman, in other words, if she hadn't been a noblewoman, she should have been buried out of Christian burial, outside of Christian burial, or even without Christian burial. So if she had just been a regular lady, she would definitely have been ruled a suicide. Maybe the king pulled some strings so she could get buried in the churchyard. And the first one agrees. He says, why there thou sayest, you know, you're speaking the truth there. And he goes on. And the more pity that great folk should have countenance in this world to drown or hang themselves more than they're even Christian. Great folk are important or ranked or rich people. It's a pity that they should have countenance. In other words, the privilege or the approval of the authorities to drown or hang themselves more than they're even Christian. Even Christian is like fellow Christian. So it's a shame these rich people can drown or hang themselves whenever they want and get away with it. But time to move on. He says, come, my spade. 
Spade just being another word for a shovel. He's calling for his shovel so he can start digging. And as he starts digging, he thinks, There's no ancient gentleman but gardeners, ditchers, and grave makers. Ancient gentleman could mean, like, the oldest professions, but gentleman can also mean noblemen. So it's like the oldest noblemen are gardeners, ditchers, in other words, ditch diggers, and grave makers, grave diggers. They hold up Adam's profession. Hold up meaning maintain or keep it up. So Adam's profession, the first man's job, and the second guy is confused. He says, was he a gentleman? And here he probably does mean nobleman. And the first guy says, he was the first that ever bore arms. That A being a sort of low-class way to say he. And bore arms here means had a coat of arms, which was the symbol of nobility. You know, it's like this family crest that means that you're a nobleman. And the second guy calls him on that. He says, why, he had none. Like, who was going to give him a coat of arms? God? But the first guy is resolute. He says, what, art a heathen? How dost thou understand the scripture? The scripture says, Adam digged. So what is he talking about here? So there is this fairly famous saying that goes back all the way to the Middle Ages. When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then a gentleman? Which is a sort of ancient protest against inequality. So it's kind of a way of saying that in the state of nature, there were no class distinctions. When Adam delved, when Adam was digging, and Eve span, and Eve was spinning thread, there were no nobles and no peasants. And I think this gravedigger thinks that that's actually a verse from the Bible, which is why he says, the scripture says Adam digged. So are you a heathen? You've never read that verse in the scripture? But never mind, he goes on. He says, if the scripture says Adam digged, could he dig without arms? So obviously bore arms means you had a coat of arms, but here he interprets it to mean had arms on his body. And how can you dig without arms to dig with? In this case, he may be joking as opposed to just being a stupid dummy. He probably knows that difference between arms and arms. So he may think it's kind of a cute little joke. And now while he's in the mode of showing off how smart he is, he says, I'll put another question to thee. In other words, I'll ask you another question. If thou answerest me not to the purpose, confess thyself. To the purpose usually means on the subject. Here it probably means correctly. So if you don't give me the correct answer, confess thyself. And there's a few ways to read this. One, he may be sort of interrupted, like he's going to say, confess that you're stupid. Or it may be confess thyself, like take confession before you die, especially if you're going to be executed, which is a pretty harsh penalty for getting a question wrong. And the second guy doesn't want to hear any of that. He says, go to, which is sort of the Elizabethan way of saying, oh, please, or shut up. Just get to the question. So here's the question. The first guy says, what is he that builds stronger than either the mason, the shipwright, or the carpenter? A mason is just another name for a stone worker. I don't know. Stone walls and ships and wooden houses are pretty strong. Who builds stronger than them? And the second guy thinks he knows. He says, the gallows maker for that frame outlives a thousand tenants. Frame here just means a structure. So that's not a bad answer. A person who makes a gallows, a place where you execute people, thousands of people live there. Not for very long, obviously. And I don't think the first guy expected him to have an answer like that. He says, I like thy wit well in good faith. In good faith meaning, I swear by my good faith. It usually just means truly. I like thy wit well. You are actually really smart and witty. He says, the gallows does well. Does well here means makes for a good answer. But then he puns on it. He says, but how does it well? It does well to those that do ill. And here, does well means works really well on those that do ill, ill meaning evil. So you get that fun on does well, does ill. Now, thou dost ill to say the gallows is built stronger than the church. And he turns that on him. He says, now you're the one who's doing evil if you're saying that the gallows is built stronger than the church. It's kind of unchristian of you. Ergal, the gallows may do well to thee. There's that messed up ergo again. Therefore, the gallows may do well, work well on you since he just did ill by saying the wrong answer. This is exactly the same kind of sharp wit that Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were first engaged in. So it's actually really nice to see a lower class person using that same kind of wit. So he ends on, to it again, come. So go at the question again. Come on, let's go. And the second guy thinks, who builds stronger than a mason, a shipwright, or a carpenter? And the first guy starts to taunt him. He says, I tell me that, an unyoke, 
Unyoke is a reference to how farmers would yoke up their oxen or their horses and go and plow their field all day. And after the animals were all burnt out, they would take the yoke off of them. So he sees this other guy thinking really hard. And he's joking with him that it's as though his brain is a really overworked animal. and He should take the yoke off of it and let it rest all night. And the other guy gets an idea. He says, Mary, now I can tell. Mary being, I swear by Mary. Now I can tell. Now I know the answer. And the first guy says, to it. Give me the answer. Go for it. And the second guy says, mass, I cannot tell. Mass being short for, I swear by the mass. So just kidding, I actually have no idea. And the first guy is pretty proud of himself. He says, Cudgel thy brains no more about it, for your dull ass will not mend his pace with beating. Cudgel means to beat up, usually with this kind of club called a cudgel. So stop beating your brains about it. Stop thinking so hard. For your dull ass will not mend his pace with beating. In other words, your stupid donkey isn't going to walk faster because you beat him. So he's comparing the guy's brain to a beast of burden again, as though thinking harder isn't going to make him think better. And finally, he gives the answer. He says, And when you are asked this question next, say, A grave maker. The houses he makes last till doomsday. It's funny how all of his jokes are just about grave diggers. Oh well. So the next time you hear this joke, tell them the answer is a grave digger. Why? Because the houses he makes, in other words, the graves, last till doomsday. Doomsday is the day of judgment when the dead were supposed to be called out of their graves to be judged. So there really is no structure that lasts as long as a grave. And he sort of triumphs in his victory. And then he says, go, get thee to yawn. Uh, fetch me a stoop of liquor. This yawn is probably whoever owns the local alehouse. I don't know if he's supposed to be Danish. Maybe his name is Johan or something. And he asks for a stoop of liquor. A stoop is just a large drinking container. So the guy goes off to get him some drink while he works hard on this grave. And to pass the time while he grave digs, he starts singing, which is also super weird. He sings... In youth, when I did love, did love, me thought it was very sweet to contract uh, the time for uh, my behove. Oh, me thought there uh, was nothing uh, meet. This is a real song, by the way, except for the parts where he forgets the words, which are written into the script, which is kind of hilarious. So what words there are unmangled, what do they mean? So in my youth, when I was in love, me thought it was very sweet. It seemed to me that it was very sweet. It was very nice to contract. Contract being the opposite of expand. In other words, pass the time, make the time shorter. For a my behove. Behove means my pleasure, or my benefit. Oh, me thought there was nothing meat. Meat means appropriate. Maybe it's supposed to be there was nothing so meat. But there really is an actual text for this. So it would have been a fairly well-known song at the time. And then we discover that all this time, Hamlet and Horatio have been watching. There are some texts that have a stage direction with a specific entrance point, but I think a director can kind of choose when that moment is. So we haven't seen this guy in a little while. Welcome back, Hamlet. And they're met by this very strange sight, which is a guy singing while he digs a grave. And Hamlet says, Has this fellow no feeling of his business that he sings at grave making? Feeling of his business means like no understanding or awareness of the nature of his business. This is serious business, the burial of the dead. So if he sings while he's doing this, does he appreciate what he does? And Horatio doesn't think it's as big of a deal. He says, custom hath made it in him a property of easiness. Custom being habit, or just getting accustomed to the action, has made it in him a property of easiness. Which means like a careless activity. You know, you do something enough, you get used to it. Remember Hamlet had this long speech about custom to his mother in the closet scene? So Horatio says, go easy on this guy, he's just used to it. It's not as big of a deal for him. This is someone who's used to death. And Hamlet says, tis e'en so. In being short for even, meaning just exactly so, you're right. The hand of little employment hath the daintier sense. Hand here being another way of just saying the person of little employment, a person who doesn't have very much experience with doing something, hath the daintier sense. Daintier sense meaning a more refined or particular sensibility. If you weren't trained as a surgeon, it'd be pretty gross to open up people's bodies. But if you're a surgeon, you're totally used to that. It's nothing. 
So someone with not much experience in something like grave digging or surgery would find it gross and inappropriate. But the grave digger keeps singing. He says, But age with his stealing steps hath clawed me in his clutch and has shipped me into the land as if I had never been such. So remember what the first part of the song was about? How when you're young, you just like to pass the time however you can? But he sings age with his stealing steps. Stealing means like sneaking up on you. And you get that fun double S sound. Hath clawed me in his clutch. Almost like he grabbed me in his clutches. In his deathy hands. And you get those hard C sounds in this line. Clawed me in his clutch. And has shipped me into the land. Which means return me to the earth. To the dust I came from. As if I had never been such. As if I had never even existed. So actually this is a pretty appropriate song for a gravedigger to be singing. About how we start out as dirt and then we end up as dirt. And then the big surprise, as he's digging, he throws a skull up out of the grave. And Hamlet is freaked out. As you might be if you saw a human skull lying there in front of you. He's shocked. He says, that skull had a tongue in it and could sing once. So this gravedigger is singing? Well, that dead person used to sing. How the knave jowls it to the ground as if it were Cain's jawbone that did the first murder. A knave is like a rascal or a jerk, how he jowls it to the ground. Jowls means slams it or thrusts it onto the ground. But there might also be a pun on the word jowl, which means like jawbone. So he throws it to the ground as if it were Cain's jawbone that did the first murder. Remember that primal eldest curse that Claudius talked about? Cain killed his brother. It was the first murder. And his punishment was that he had to wander the earth forever and he was marked so no one would ever associate with him. So this gravedigger is throwing this guy's skull on the ground as if it were deserving of that kind of curse. And then Hamlet's imagination starts to wander. He says, This might be the pate of a politician, which this ass now o'erreaches. One that would circumvent God, might it not? So this might be the pate, which is another way to say head, of a politician. Maybe even a politician like Claudius or his father. Which this ass, this stupid gravedigger, now o'erreaches. O'erreaches or overreaches is another way to say out-schemes or defeats at politics. But you also have that sense of political overreaching. One that would circumvent God. Circumvent meaning deceive or outwit. So this skull might be another one of those scheming politicians, the kind that tries to fool everyone, even God. Might it not? Might it not be? And Horatio says, it might, my lord. But Hamlet's not done. He says, or of a courtier, which could say, good morrow, sweet lord. How dost thou, good lord? And here's his favorite target, the courtiers. Well, this might be the skull of a courtier, which could say, good morrow. In other words, good morning, sweet lord. How dost thou? How are you doing? Good Lord. It's all that buttering up language that they always use. And it might be a courtier just like Polonius or Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Those people who love buttering up the royalty. This might be my Lord such a one that praised my Lord such a one's horse when he meant to beg it, might it not? So this skull might be my Lord such a one, which is sort of the equivalent of saying, what's his name? Lord A and Lord B. So this might be this Lord that praised some other Lord's horse when he meant to beg it. In other words, when he intended to borrow it from him. So he probably went through this long litany of praise of this horse just to borrow it for a day. And this is the kind of stuff the courtiers are always doing in Hamlet's eyes. And it's interesting to me that a lot of these examples are about specific people who Hamlet either has killed or is about to kill. So Hamlet the killer is getting very philosophical. So when he asks Horatio if this might be that courtier, Horatio says, I, my lord? He doesn't know where he's going. And Hamlet says, why e'en so? E'en again meaning even or just exactly so. And now, my lady worms, chapless, and knocked about the mazard with a sexton's spade. So maybe this skull used to be my lord such a one, but now he's my lady worms. In other words, now he belongs to the worms. And not just any worm, my lady worm. Why my lady? Maybe because the worms are so powerful. Remember that scene with Claudius and Hamlet, where Hamlet was talking about how even kings are eaten by worms? It's that same idea, that this person who used to be a lord now belongs to my lady worm. And he's chapless, which means jawless, which is how most skulls end up and knocked about the mazard. Mazard is another way of saying head, 
but what it literally means is a cherry stone, which is about the same shape and kind of boniness of a skull. So he's comparing a human skull to just regular old garbage, and he's knocked about the skull with a sexton's spade. Sexton is a church handyman, and the spade is a shovel. So now some random yahoo is hitting this former lord in the head with a shovel. And Hamlet says, here's fine revolution, and we have the trick to see it. Revolution, of course, can mean the lower classes rising up to defeat the upper classes, which is one thing that Sexton is doing by hitting an important guy in the head with a shovel. But think of it also in the sense of revolve, almost like fortune's wheel. So the person who was really important is now nothing, and the guy who's normally nothing has all the power over him. And we have the trick to see it, if we had the knack to see it, basically. Did these bones cost no more the breeding but to play at loggets with them? As in, didn't all the expensive bringing up that went into these bones, you know, the education and the horse riding instructions and the fancy clothes and all that stuff. And then Loggett's is a game kind of like horseshoes, which is basically what the guy is playing with skulls. So after all the expense put into making these bones, have they ended up so cheap that some guy's just playing a game with them? And he says, mine ache to think on it. In other words, my bones ache just thinking about that maybe I'd end up like this. But the gravedigger keeps singing. He hasn't noticed them yet. He sings... A pickaxe and a spade, a spade for and a shrouding sheet. Oh, a pit of clay for to be made, for such a guest is meet. Spade again means a shovel. For and means and also a shrouding sheet, a shrouding sheet like a shroud, a wrapping sheet for the dead. But you get that cool alliteration of shrouding sheet. Oh, a pit of clay for to be made, clay like dirt, for such a guest is meet. Meet means appropriate. For such a guest being those tenants he talked about, the dead bodies. So in some ways, he's almost reflecting on what Hamlet just talked about. So no matter how important of a guest you are, the accommodations you get in the afterlife are just a pit of clay. And then he throws up some more bones. Another skull hits the ground. And Hamlet says, there's another. Why may not that be the skull of a lawyer? And here's where Shakespeare really gets to do social commentary. Everyone's always loved lawyer jokes. So he says, where be his quiddities now? His quillets, his cases, his tenures, and his tricks. Quiddities and quillets, in addition to being these amazing sounding cue-words, are ways to say quibbles, sort of like picky little legal points that you use to pick holes in a case, just the kinds of things that lawyers are always doing. His cases, his legal cases, his tenures, tenures are property titles or real estate titles in general, and his tricks, his legal tricks. Now that he's dead and just a skull, what happened to everything he built his career on? Why does he suffer this rude knave now to knock him about the sconce with a dirty shovel and will not tell him of his action of battery? So why does he suffer this rude knave? Why does he allow this rude rascal to knock him about the sconce? Sconce also means head. I don't know where Hamlet gets all these amazing synonyms for head, but sconce is literally a lantern. And when you think about a lantern, it has that kind of empty skull look to it too. So why is a lawyer letting this jerk hit him on the head with a dirty shovel and will not tell him of his action of battery? An action of battery is a lawsuit for battery. So why won't this lawyer sue this guy for hitting him on the head? Hmm, this fellow might be in his time a great buyer of land, with his statutes, his recognizances, his fines, his double vouchers, his recoveries. So this fellow might be in his time, in other words, he might have been in his time, a great buyer of land, a real estate baron, with his statute. A statute is a kind of legal bond that attaches someone's debt to his land, and then a recognizance is a legal bond that recognizes a debt. So it's another kind of real estate document. His fines, his double vouchers. A double voucher is a legal document that states a person's right to a property, and double just means that it's signed by two people. And his recoveries, a recovery is a legal procedure that transfers property ownership, so it lets someone recover property. So these are all just legal documents that have something to do with real estate. And then Hamlet, being as witty as he is, starts punning on these words. He says, Is this the fine of his fines and the recovery of his recoveries, to have his fine pate full of fine dirt? 
So he takes that sense of fine as a penalty. And then he says, is this the fine of his fines? That first fine means something like final destination or final result of all of his fines. In other words, is becoming a skull the final result of his fines? And the recovery of his recoveries. Recovery like restoration of all of his recoveries, those legal transfers of property, as though he's been recovered by the land. So is this the result of all that? To have his fine pate full of fine dirt. Pate again means head, and fine like high class or impressive, full of fine dirt. And there's the pun, fine like a fine powder. So his fine, his glorious impressive head, is now full of fine like powdery dirt. Will his vouchers vouch him no more of his purchases, and double ones too, than the length and breadth of a pair of indentures? So remember, vouchers are documents that state that you have a right to a particular property. So will those vouchers vouch him? Will they guarantee him no more of his purchases? And double ones, too. Remember those double vouchers? Then the length and breadth of a pair of indentures. A pair of indentures are legal documents that have a copy for two signers. So he had all these documents which gave him the right to a particular amount of land. But in the end, all he has is something that's about as long and as wide as these two single legal documents. The very conveyances of his lands will scarcely lie in this box. And must the inheritor himself have no more, huh? Conveyances are legal documents that transfer property, convey it, in other words. So these documents of his lands will scarcely, they'll barely lie in this one box. And the box could either be a coffin, or it could be the idea of the skull itself as a box. And must the inheritor himself have no more, huh? In other words, the owner of those documents have no more room than that. All he has is this skull left. This is sort of the ultimate you-can't-take-it-with-you argument. So this is someone who spent all this time hoarding legal documents and properties, and now all he's left with is a bunch of paper about the size of his own skull. And Horatio says, not a jot more, my lord, not even a tiny little bit more space than that. And Hamlet, still thinking of those documents, says, is not parchment made of sheepskins? Horatio says, I, my lord, and of calfskins, too. So the parchment these documents are on is made of skin, after all, which is exactly what that skull doesn't have. So if this skull's skin has gone away so soon, just think how soon his documents are going to melt away. All that collecting stuff for nothing. And Hamlet puns on that and says, they are sheep and calves which seek out assurance in that. Sheep and calves were two ways to say idiots. So anyone who seeks out assurance in these parchments made out of skin is an idiot, because as we see here, skin goes away. I mean, this is all very funny and smart and all, but it's also kind of chilling. This is Hamlet looking at skulls and thinking, what did their lives actually mean? They spent all this time hunting prestige and name and possessions, and all they're left with is a little bit of bone in the end. This is a guy who's looking down the barrel of his own death. And I think it's in part because he's killed people. He's held that power, and he knows that he's going to have to attack Claudius, and he knows that's almost certainly going to result in his own death. You know, there's that weird paradox about death, which is that everybody can understand intellectually that it's going to happen, but it's almost impossible to really understand that. After all, we have no idea what it feels like to be dead. So Hamlet's trying to find ways to understand what he's about to be. And he does it through this very dark humor, but it's interesting to see him processing that out loud. So philosophical moment over, he says, I will speak to this fellow. He's going to go talk to the gravedigger. And he gets his attention and says, Whose grave's this, Sirrah? Sirrah is a sort of version of Sir. It's a title you specifically use to address people of lower status than you. And the gravedigger says to him, Mine, sir. And he goes back to singing. Oh, a pit of clay for to be made, for such a guest is meat. So he asks him a pretty simple question, and he gives him a slightly jokey response, whether he gets it or not. So whose grave is this? Oh, it's mine. And Hamlet tries again. He says, I think it be thine indeed, for thou liest in it. Which is to say, it must be your grave, since you're inside of it right now. And the gravedigger says back to him, you lie out on it, sir, and therefore tis not yours. In other words, you stand outside of it, so it isn't yours. For my part, I do not lie in it, yet it is mine. As for me, I'm not the one who's going to actually lie in it, but it is my grave, since I'm digging it. 
And Hamlet, who loves these battles of wits, decides to escalate it a little bit. He says, thou just lie in it to be in it and say it is thine. And when he says lie, he means not tell the truth. Like you're the one who's lying in it since you're in the grave and you're saying it's yours. And why? Because he says, tis for the dead, not for the quick. Therefore thou liest. It's for dead people. It's not for quick people. Quick here meaning alive. Therefore you lie. And Hamlet probably thinks he's going to blow this guy away. But the gravedigger is actually almost better than he is at this. He says, tis a quick lie, sir. Twill away again from me to you. And when he says quick, he means fast. So this is a classic turn in the style of battles of wits and punning. Hamlet used quick one way, and he takes that word quick and remakes it. It's so quick, he says, that twill away again. In other words, it'll run away again from me to you. As if now Hamlet is the liar. And Hamlet's actually a little flustered by this guy. He's pretty fast on his feet. Hamlet says, what man dost thou dig it for? As though he's just going to lay the obvious meaning out on the table, and he's going to have to respond to him. And the guy says, for no man, sir. Well, how can that be? But Hamlet figures it out. He says, what woman then? And the guy says, for none neither. Not one of those either. And Hamlet's pretty frustrated at this point. He says, who is to be buried in it? And finally, the gravedigger gives up the game. He says, one that was a woman, sir, but rest her soul, she's dead. So it's a person who used to be a woman, but rest her soul. May God rest her soul. She's dead now. So she's just a dead body. And obviously this is a joke, but there's something also a little chilling about it, that you become neither a man nor a woman when you're dead. You just become a thing. And Hamlet is pretty florid. He says, how absolute the knave is. Absolute meaning precise or literal. This knave is, this rascal is. We must speak by the card or equivocation will undo us. To speak by the card means to be incredibly precise. This may actually be a navigation reference, this phrase, by the card. It might refer to a card that sailors have or even a map. It's something that's marked to help them find their way at sea. And that's the kind of precision that Hamlet needs when talking to this stupid guy. So we have to speak incredibly precisely or equivocation, which means double meaning or quibbling or punning, will undo us. Undo meaning defeat. He's genuinely surprised by this guy. He says, by the Lord, Horatio, this three years I have taken note of it. The age has grown so picked that the toe of the peasant comes so near the heel of the courtier, he galls his kibe. So by the Lord, I swear by God, this three years, in other words, these last three years, it may not literally be three. It might just be these last few years. I have taken note of it. In other words, I've noticed this. The age is grown so picked. This time we live in is grown so affected, so over-refined, as though this courtier sentiment is kind of creeping into all parts of life. So it's so affected that the toe of the peasant comes so near the heel of the courtier, he galls his kibe, which is a fancy way of saying he chafes his heel. So the image is of a peasant following so close behind a courtier that his toe starts to annoy the back of the courtier's heel but not literally following him, following him in style. So even the peasants now are talking like courtiers. So Hamlet has to choose his words very carefully when he speaks to this guy. He says, how long hast thou been a grave maker? And of course, the gravedigger is really happy to hear that. He loves talking about grave digging. He says, of all the days in the year, I came to it that day that our last King Hamlet overcame Fortinbras. Oh, this is interesting. Remember at the beginning of the play, when we heard about how Hamlet's father defeated Fortinbras's father in battle? Well, that was exactly the day that this random gravedigger started working. And Hamlet asks, how long is that since? Like, how long ago is that? And the gravedigger says, cannot you tell that? Every fool can tell that. Like, you don't know how long ago that was? It was the very day that young Hamlet was born. He that is mad and sent into England. Wouldn't you know, it was Hamlet's birthday. So, of course, as soon as the gravedigger starts talking about Hamlet and not knowing that he's talking to Hamlet, it's pretty exciting for Hamlet. He can go undercover now. And so he asks, I am Mary. Why was he sent into England? Mary, again, being short for I swear by Mary. So he's interested to hear what the people are saying about why he got sent to England. And the gravedigger looks at him like an idiot and says, why, because he was mad? Duh. He shall recover his wits there, or if he do not, tis no great matter there. He'll recover his wits, in other words, he'll recover his sanity. But if he doesn't, that's fine if he's in England. And Hamlet asks, why? 
And the gravedigger says, "'Twill not be seen in him there." Seen meaning noticed. So they're not going to notice he's crazy there. Why? There the men are as mad as he. So everyone's crazy there. And obviously this is being performed in front of an English audience. So I'm sure they find this hilarious. Foreigners ragging on England. And Hamlet's amused, but he wants to know more. He says, how came he mad? Like, how did Hamlet go crazy? And the gravedigger says, very strangely, they say. And Hamlet asks, how strangely? And the gravedigger says, faith, even with losing his wits. So it's almost as though this is a state secret. Faith, in other words, I swear by my faith. He even went crazy with losing his wits, losing his mind or his sanity, which of course is just a synonym for going mad, which is ridiculous. And Hamlet says, upon what ground? Ground being a word for reason. So he's saying, no, what I mean is, what was the reason he went crazy? But of course, he's left himself open to punning. And the gravedigger says, why here in Denmark? So he puns on the meaning of ground into literal ground. And he thinks he's asking, where did he go crazy? He says, why here in Denmark? And now that he's won that particular battle of wits, he goes on. I have been sexton here, man and boy, 30 years. So I've been working as the church handyman here, as a man and as a boy, for 30 years. And this is a little controversial because this seems to give an age for Hamlet. Remember he said his first day of work was Hamlet's birthday? I don't know, I always read Hamlet as younger, but maybe that's just because I first read it when I was a teenager, so I saw myself as him. But it's interesting to see a very specific age given. Not that that ever stopped 50-year-olds from playing this part. He always seemed about 21 to me. And then Hamlet asks him a somewhat odd professional question. He says, How long will a man lie in the earth ere he rot? Ere he rot meaning before he rots. So how long does it take that skin to go away? And the gravedigger replies, Faith, if he be not rotten before he die, as we have many pocky courses nowadays that will scarce hold the laying in, he will last you some eight year or nine year. Faith, I swear by my faith, if he be not rotten before he die, if he isn't rotten before he actually dies, since we have many pocky courses, pocky meaning diseased, specifically ridden with pox, and courses being another word for corpses. So nowadays the bodies are actually pretty messed up by disease, so much so that they will scarce hold the laying in. In other words, they will barely last through the burial without falling apart. But if he isn't rotten already, he will last you some eight or nine year. So that's about how long it takes to get down to the bones. But he has an addendum. He says, a tanner will last you nine year. A tanner is a person who takes animal skins and uses chemicals to make them last longer, to make them leather, basically. This is actually kind of a neat reflection back on the sheepskins and calfskins part from earlier. So if someone's a tanner, they'll last longer than other people. And Hamlet asks, why he more than another? And the gravedigger says, why, sir, his hide is so tanned with his trade that he will keep out water a great while, and your water is a sore decayer of your horse and dead body. His hide, his own animal skin, is so tanned with his trade, it's so preserved with his trade, with his job, that he will keep out water a great while. So he spent so much of his life around chemicals that his skin takes longer to decompose in the ground because it keeps out water so well. And your water is a sore decayer, sore meaning severe or harsh, of your horse and dead body. Horsen literally means, of course, son of a whore, but it's as close to a swear word as we have in this play. If you'd like, you can insert your favorite swear word instead of horsen. It also gives a little bit of local color, that this is how these lower class people talk. And then he sees a skull and wants to use it as an example. He says, here's a skull now. This skull hath lain you in the earth three and twenty years. So this is a skull that's been in the earth for 23 years. And Hamlet's interested. He says, whose was it? As if the gravedigger would know. But fortunately for the purposes of this play, the gravedigger does know. How he tells, I have no idea. Some productions have some identifying feature of the skull. I don't know. So when Hamlet asks whose skull it was, the gravedigger says, a horse and madfellows it was. There's that word horse again. Madfellows it was. It belonged to this crazy guy. And then he asks him, whose do you think it was? Weird question. Hamlet says, nay, I know not. And the gravedigger says, a pestilence on him for a mad rogue. A pestilence on him. May the plague be on him for a mad rogue, for being a crazy, dishonest man. And what's his complaint? He poured a flagon of Rhenish on my head once. A flagon is a big pitcher, and Rhenish is a kind of wine. 
specifically from the Rhine region in Germany. So this guy poured an entire pitcher of wine on my head once. That's why he was a mad rogue. And finally he tells Hamlet whose it was. This same skull, sir, was Yorick's skull, the king's jester. So this same skull, this very skull here, belonged to Yorick, who was the jester to the king. And because this was 23 years ago when he died, it was to Hamlet's father. Remember, the job of the jester was to make the king laugh and to make fun of him to his face even sometimes. He was the only one who could do that. Almost in the same way that this character is making fun of Hamlet to his face. This is really as close to a jester figure as we have in this play. But of course, if Hamlet is 30 and this guy's been dead for 23 years and used to work for his dad, Hamlet knew this guy. And Hamlet says, this? And the gravedigger says, even that? Short for even that, as in just exactly this one. You almost get a sense from this exchange that the gravedigger actually knows exactly who he's talking to and specifically brought up this skull. But it's very convenient for the rest of the scene. And Hamlet says, let me see. And then we get the most famous pose in all of theater history, which is Hamlet holding the skull in his hand and looking at it. And this bugs me to no end. Let's say someone handed you a skull in a cemetery. Are you just going to grab it? Personally, I'd be super weirded out by it. I wouldn't want to touch a skull, especially if it was someone I knew. But of course, everyone who plays Hamlet has to hold this skull by the face and look deeply into his scully eyes and seem profound and pose for the picture that's going to be in the newspaper and put it up on his wall afterwards. Occasionally, and I wish this happened more often, you will see Hamlets that are actually afraid to touch it, that use like a stick to pick it up or don't even touch it or just kick it around a little bit with their feet. What's important here is Hamlet literally coming face to face with death. Because all those other skulls he was talking about earlier, where he was making up possible identities for them, they weren't real to him. But this is real to him. He knows exactly who this dead person is. And the first thing he says, in addition to being famous, is very sad. He says, alas, poor Yorick. Alas is a word of real sorrow. He says, poor Yorick. Why is he poor? Because he's dead. Hamlet probably hasn't thought of him in years and years. But here he is, face to face with his skull. And he says, I knew him, Horatio. Not, I knew him well. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. Jest means joking around. It's what a jester does. But how much of it? Infinite jest. Like, he could joke forever. Of most excellent fancy. Fancy, remember, meaning imagination or inventiveness. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times. In other words, he carried me on his back a thousand times when I was a little kid. But it turns, he says, and now how abhorred in my imagination it is. Abhorred means disgusting or even terrifying. In my imagination it is. I wonder what the it refers to. Is it just the thought of Yorick? The thought of him joking? The thought of him carrying Hamlet on his back? Because when Hamlet thinks of those things, he's disgusted. He says, my gorge rises at it. Gorge is the contents of your stomach. Like it starts going up your throat. You want to throw up. And he says, here hung those lips that I have kissed I know not how oft. So here, right here on this skull, hung those lips. It's an incredible verb, as though they were hanging off of the skull. He kissed them I know not how oft. I have no idea how many times I kissed them. It was that many times. It's sort of a horrifying thought now. And then he says, where be your jibes now? Your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar. Jibes are like taunts, and gambles are like antics or tricks. Songs. These are all the things that a jester does. So what happened to them now? Your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar. Wont meaning used to or likely to set the table on a roar, meaning laughing hysterically. So what happened to all the hilarious aspects of your job? They're all gone now. And all that's left is this skull. Not one now to mock your own grinning. So it used to be his job to make fun of other people. And he's not saying anything now. He's certainly not mocking his own grinning. Because skulls have that kind of weird grinning look to them. Quite chapfallen. And chapfallen is a pun. It can either mean sad, like crestfallen, or it can literally mean lacking a jaw, which skulls don't have. So you used to constantly be making jokes, and now nothing? Are you sad? And then he starts to give him orders, like he used to back in the day. He says, 
Now get you to my lady's chamber, and tell her, let her paint an inch thick, to this favor she must come. Now get you, I command you to go to my lady's chamber, her room, and tell her, let her paint an inch thick. Tell her that even if she applies makeup that's an inch thick, to this favor, to this appearance of face, she must come, she must end up. In other words, no matter how much she paints her face, she's going to end up looking like you, like a skull. And this is that same language again that Hamlet's using all throughout the play. It's actually very similar to the image that Claudius used about makeup on the face of a prostitute. But it's that image again of an ugly interior covered up by a beautiful exterior. In this case, it's not only an ugly interior, it's death. That beneath even the most beautiful skin is a skull. Make her laugh at that. Like if you're a jester, good luck making her laugh at the idea that she can end up as a skull. You know, there was this medieval tradition, which still existed at this time, that was called the memento mori, which is the Latin words for remember that you must die. And you'll sometimes see it around Europe still. You'll see churches that are full of skull decorations. You'll see paintings of beautiful young people who are holding skulls. Sometimes important people would even keep skulls on their desk. And this was all just a reminder that no matter how young and beautiful and effective and powerful you are now, you're going to die. It was a way of keeping people honest. So this moment, and this scene as a whole, is sort of one giant memento mori. It's Hamlet reminding himself that he's going to die, and going to die soon. Because in many ways, this scene feels like a pause between important things. But actually, I think it's more than just jokes. I think it's hugely important, because as much as anything, this is a play about someone coming to terms with death, with their own death, and with the death of others. And this is the scene where he really has to literally look death in the face, and understand it as best he can. And as he looks into the skull face of his old friend, Hamlet turns to Horatio and says, Prithee, Horatio, tell me one thing. Prithee meaning I ask you. And Horatio says, What's that, my lord? And Hamlet asks, Dost thou think Alexander looked to this fashion in the earth? So do you think Alexander the Great, you know, the greatest conqueror who the world has ever known, looked to this fashion, looked this way in the earth when he was dead and buried? And Horatio says, E'en so. Just exactly this way. And Hamlet says, And smelt so? Puh! Did he even smell that bad? And Horatio says, E'en so, my lord. Just exactly like that. That's what dead things smell like. And Hamlet gets lost in his head again. He says, To what base uses we may return, Horatio? Base meaning low or worthless or even dishonorable. So after we're dead, think of all the terrible ways we're going to be used. Why may not imagination trace the noble dust of Alexander till he find it stopping a bunghole? Usually when you fill a barrel with alcohol to age it or just to store it, the bunghole is the hole you use to get the alcohol in and out of it. And usually it was sealed up with either a stopper or something like clay. So Hamlet says, couldn't your imagination follow the dirt that Alexander turned into when he died till it becomes the clay that just stops up a bunghole? And Horatio's getting a little weirded out by this. He says, "Twere to consider too curiously to consider so. Curiously here isn't our modern sense of the word. It means something like too closely, too minutely. So thinking that closely is too much. But of course, considering too curiously is exactly what Hamlet does with everything. And so he disagrees. He says, no faith, not a jot. No, I swear by my faith, not a jot, not even a little. It isn't to consider too curiously. It's really important to follow him this way. So he sets out the chain of events. He says, but to follow him thither with modesty enough and likelihood to lead it. So let's follow Alexander thither, which is just another word for to there, meaning the bunghole, with modesty enough. Modesty here just means with moderation, like not making any big logical jumps, and likelihood to lead it, and let that logic be guided by the most likely scenario. And so he lays it out as thus. Alexander died. Alexander was buried. Alexander returneth into dust. The dust is earth. Of earth we make loam, and why of that loam, whereto he was converted, might they not stop a beer barrel? So he just sets up all the steps. Death, burial, decomposition, and since dust becomes earth, becomes the soil, and of earth we make loam. Loam is this mixture of wet clay and straw that they used to make plaster or brick. 
And why of that loam? Why not out of that loam into which Alexander was converted? Might they not stop up a beer barrel? It's very silly, but it also makes perfect sense. This weird transition from the greatest man who ever lived into the stopper of a beer barrel. And then this amazing language moment happens. Notice this whole scene has been in prose, which is usually how comedic and especially lower class comedic scenes are written. But Hamlet's going to transition back into verse, and he's going to do it with this very conscious poem, a rhyming poem. He says, Imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. Imperious meaning majestic or ruling. Caesar, Julius Caesar, another one of the greatest conquerors who ever lived, dead and turned to clay, having died and decomposed into soil, might stop a hole, might plug up a hole to keep the wind away. You know, if there was like a hole in the wall of your house. You might use some clay to stop that up, and maybe that's clay that's made out of Julius Caesar himself. Oh, that that earth which kept the world in awe should patch a wall to expel the winter's flaw. Like, oh, it's amazing that that same dirt which used to be the greatest conqueror in the world, that the world was in awe of, should end up patching a wall to expel, in other words, to keep out the winter's flaw. Flaw here meaning a gust of wind. So this little poem is a way of summing up everything he's been saying in this scene, that no matter how great you are, you become nothing eventually. But the regularity of these two rhymed couplets in a row really seals up the first half of the scene and gets us into verse in general. And as soon as that happens, the scene changes because he hears a noise. He says, but soft, but soft. Soft being another way to say listen or even wait. Aside, as in let's go to the side where they can't see us. Why? Here comes the king, the queen, the courtiers. So it's a big funeral procession led by the most important people in the kingdom. And Hamlet asks, who is this they follow and with such maimed rites? So who is this body they're following? And with such maimed, we have this word maim. It can mean mutilated, but it can also mean truncated or cut off. And rites are just the rituals of a funeral. So we can see just from the procession that this isn't a normal funeral. They aren't doing all the things you're supposed to do in a funeral. The rituals are kind of off. And then he makes the leap. He says, this doth betoken the course they follow did with desperate hand fordo its own life. So this doth betoken, this signals or indicates the course they follow. In other words, the corpse, the body they follow after did with desperate hand fordo its own life. Fordo meaning do away with or destroy. So the person they follow committed suicide. And he concludes, "'Twas of some estate. This person was of some high social status. And then he says to Horatio, "'Couch we a while and mark.'" Couch doesn't mean they're going to sit on a couch. It means let's conceal ourselves. Let's lie hidden for a little while and mark and pay attention to what's going on here. Because nobody knows where he is except Horatio right now. So he wants to keep himself hidden. So they hide behind the nearest rock or whatever is available. And then we hear from this procession. The first one we hear is Laertes, who interrupts it. And he says, what ceremony else? As in what further ceremony? What more rituals do we have to do? And Hamlet in hiding says, that is Laertes, a very noble youth. Mark. Mark meaning watch or pay attention. Now Horatio may know who Laertes is. He probably missed him at the beginning of the play, but he probably has at least some idea who it is. But Hamlet just wants to point it out. Another part of this is Hamlet putting together who this dead body is. But Laertes asks his question again. He says, what ceremony else? And now we see that he's asking it of the priest who's performing the ceremony. But the priest doesn't have any more rituals for him. He says, her obsequies have been as far enlarged as we have warranty. Obsequies are prayers or rituals of mourning. They've been as far enlarged. In other words, they've been extended as far as we have warranty. Warranty not in our modern sense of replacing your tires if they get broken, but as in authorization from the church. Like we've stretched these rituals as far as the church will let us. And the priest says, her death was doubtful, and but the great command or sways the order, she should in ground unsanctified have lodged till the last trumpet. So her death was doubtful, it was suspicious. In other words, it kind of looked like a suicide. And but the great command or sways the order. If it weren't for the fact that the command of a powerful person, in other words, Claudius, or sways the order, overrules the order of the church, she should in ground unsanctified have lodged. So 
if it hadn't been for the king's order, she would have ended up in an unconsecrated grave, because suicides weren't allowed to be buried in churchyards and holy ground. She should have lodged there, she should have lived there, till the last trumpet. This is a reference to the trumpet that sounds on Judgment Day that wakes the dead from their graves. So if it wasn't for the king's order, she would have been there forever. And the priest is obviously pretty pissed at having to do this. He says, For charitable prayers, shards, flints, and pebbles should be thrown on her. For here means instead of or in place of. Instead of these charitable prayers, shards, like little pieces of broken pottery, flints, little pieces of flint and pebbles. Because in England, there was this tradition that you would bury suicides at a crossroads with a stake driven through their heart to mark the spot. They were really against suicide, apparently. And then people who passed by those crossroads would throw little pieces of pebble and rock at the stake. That's harsh, right? She's not Dracula. So this priest is saying we really should have treated her like a suicide because you know that's what she was. We should have disrespected her. Yet here she has allowed her virgin crants, her maiden struments, and the bringing home of bell and burial. But instead of all those rocks being thrown at her, she's allowed her virgin crants. That's a reference to a wreath that you would put on the grave of someone who died a virgin. Her maiden struments, which are flowers that you would put on the grave of a virgin. And the bringing home, the carrying to the grave of bell and burial. Bell and burial means that the church bells ring and you have a whole funeral service. So you see that contrast of she should have had these rocks thrown at her and instead she's having flowers put on her. And she gets almost all the things that a regular Christian would get. But Laertes isn't having any of that. He says, must there no more be done? And the priest replies, no more be done. You hear how straightforward all those single syllables are again? Must there no more be done? And then the priest even has sort of a half line there. No more be done. So the rest of his line is in silence. And the priest gets even harsher. He says, we should profane the service of the dead to sing a requiem and such rest to her as to peace parted souls. So we'd profane the service of the dead. The service of the dead being the funeral rituals, we would profane them. We would make them unholy to sing a requiem, which is the Latin text that you sing at a funeral, and such rest. Such rest could mean other similar rites, but it could also refer to the rest that the dead sleep. After all, requiem means give them rest in Latin, as to peace parted souls, the same service of the dead as we do to souls who parted in peace. It's a very alliterative term, peace parted, but it refers to those souls who departed from the earth in peace, i.e. without killing themselves. And Laertes doesn't want to hear any of that, so he jumps on the priest's line and ends it, layer in the earth, and from her fair and unpolluted flesh may violets spring. So put her into the ground, and from her fair and unpolluted flesh, in other words, unpolluted by sin. So that's his way to strike back and say she wasn't a sinner, she didn't kill herself. Also unpolluted in the sense of being a virgin, though there may be some debate about that too. From her flesh may violets spring. We've heard about violets a lot in this play. It's a flower that's a symbol of modesty and fidelity and even virginity. It's very strongly associated with the Virgin Mary. So may violets spring, may they spring up, may they grow out of her flesh. It's a beautiful image. And he turns on the priest and says, I tell thee, churlish priest, a ministering angel shall my sister be when thou liest howling. Churlish means rude or ungracious. So you rude priest, a ministering angel. Ministering meaning serving God or watching over people as an angel does. So my sister's going to be a ministering angel when thou liest howling. In other words, when you lie howling in hell from the flames and the pain. Not a fan of this priest, apparently. And as soon as he says sister... That's Hamlet's cue, because Hamlet pipes up and says, What, the fair Ophelia? He didn't know Ophelia was dead. Horatio obviously never told him. But as soon as he hears Laertes' sister is dead, that destroys him, because he never thought he was hurting her that way. It turns out she's become more collateral damage from his revenge quest. But it isn't time for him to come out yet. He has to wait and hold his tongue. And after they put Ophelia in, Gertrude walks up to the grave and says, Sweets to the sweet. The sweets here are sweet-smelling flowers that she's putting on the grave. So I'm giving sweet-smelling flowers to a sweet girl. 
and she starts to sprinkle flowers on the grave. She says, farewell. I hope thou shouldst have been my Hamlet's wife. This is really fascinating to hear that she wished that Ophelia could have become Hamlet's wife. So that was actually something she supported. I thought thy bride bed to have decked, sweet maid, and not have strewed thy grave. I thought I was going to have decked, in other words, decorated or adorned your bride bed, which is the place where the bride and groom sleep together for the first time after their wedding, and not have strewed thy grave. Strewed meaning covered with flowers. So it's this pretty eerie comparison of beds and graves. We had it in Hamlet's speech about the Polish wars, that they're going to their graves like beds. And here we have Gertrude saying that she wished she would have been able to decorate Ophelia's bride bed, not her grave. So she's sleeping in a place that Gertrude didn't expect. And Laertes can't control his grief. He says, O treble woe, fall ten times treble on that cursed head, whose wicked deed thy most ingenious sense deprived thee of. So treble woe is like a triple sorrow. I don't know exactly what he means by this. It might refer to the two deaths and one madness that Hamlet caused. But there's a real question. It just means a sorrow so strong that it's three times normal. So he says, may it fall 10 times treble, in other words, 30 times over, on that cursed head whose wicked deed thy most ingenious sense deprived thee of. What's the wicked deed? It's the killing of Polonius. And that deed deprived Ophelia of her most ingenious sense. Ingenious meaning intelligent, and sense just being her power to reason. So the wicked deed deprived Ophelia of her sanity. So he's calling for a 30-time curse on the head that did the deed. And whose head is that? It's Hamlet's. He's the one who killed Polonius and caused her to go insane. And he gets so worked up, he says, hold off the earth a while till I have caught her once more in mine arms. So hold off the earth means don't cover her up with the dirt till I have caught her, till I have held her or hugged her in my arms one more time. Again, this is something we've seen a lot. Laertes jumping into Ophelia's grave, but it is super weird. Don't forget how super weird it is. Could you imagine being at a funeral where someone jumped into the grave, opened the casket and started hugging the body? We need to make this crazy stuff crazy again. He gets in there and he holds her body and he says, Now pile your dust upon the quick and dead, till of this flat a mountain you have made to o'ertop old Pelion or the skyish head of blue Olympus. So now that he's in there, he's asking them to pile the dust upon the quick and dead, on the living and the dead, both on him and his sister, till of this flat, flat meaning level ground, you have made a mountain to o'ertop, o'ertop meaning surpass in height, old Pelion. Pelion was a famous tall mountain in Greece, or the skyish head of Blue Olympus. Skyish is a really fun adjective. It just means touching the sky, but because it's touching the sky, it might also be blue colored. The skyish head, in other words, the blue top of Blue Olympus. Olympus was another very tall mountain in Greece. It was famously supposed to be the home of the Greek gods. So he's asking them to pile so much dirt on top of the grave that they form a mountain that's incredibly tall. But this is too much for Hamlet, and he finally comes forward. In fact, he jumps onto the end of Laertes' line and finishes the verse line. He says, What is he whose grief bears such an emphasis, whose phrase of sorrow conjures the wandering stars and makes them stand like wonder-wounded hearers? So bears such an emphasis means is expressed in such emphatic or strong words. If anything, it's how over-the-top Laertes' words are that is annoying Hamlet here, as though he's showing off his grief, whose phrase of sorrow, whose way of expressing their sorrow, conjures the wandering stars conjures meaning casts a spell on them and why are they wandering because they wander across the sky during the night so what does this spell do to the stars it makes them stand makes them stop stand still exactly where they are like wonder wounded hearers i love that term wonder wounded so these stars stand still as if they've been wounded by wonder they've been struck by amazement which incidentally is probably how everyone in the scene is standing right now like wonder wounded hearers you also get that cool alliteration of wandering and wonder and wounded. And now that everyone is looking at Hamlet, that he's revealed himself to be back, he says, this is I, Hamlet the Dane. And I don't think you necessarily always get what a big deal this phrase is. 
He doesn't say Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark. He says the Dane. The Dane is the king of Denmark. We already have a Dane. He's also on stage. His name is Claudius. It's almost as though he's saying, I'm here, Hamlet, the rightful king of Denmark. Not like that usurper over there. It's a pretty dramatic declaration, no? And with that, he jumps into the grave to fight over the dead body of Ophelia with Laertes. Again, super weird. And they start fighting. Laertes yells, the devil take thy soul. And he starts to attack him. And Hamlet says, thou prayest not well. What prayer is he referring to? The prayer for the devil to take Hamlet's soul? He's saying, Laertes, you probably shouldn't be praying to the devil. Pray to God instead. And as they're fighting, he asks Laertes, I prithee, take thy fingers from my throat. I ask you to take your fingers off my throat. He's starting to strangle him. There's also a little bit of a pun on I prithee and thou praised. So you're praying badly to the devil, but I'm praying to you to take your fingers from my throat. And why should he take his fingers from his throat? For though I am not splenitive and rash, yet have I in me something dangerous, which let thy wisdom fear. Splenitive is a pretty cool word. It means short-tempered, and it comes from the word spleen. It's that humoral medicine again. It's that idea that your temper came from a fluid in your spleen, supposedly. So I'm not splenitive and rash, but I have in me something dangerous, which let thy wisdom fear. In other words, if you're wise, you should be afraid of it. And we don't think of Hamlet as a fighter, but Hamlet's now killed a bunch of people. He's not wrong to tell Laertes to watch out for him. This guy is a killer. And he says, hold off thy hand. In other words, remove your hand from me. And meanwhile, the entire court who's watching this starts to freak out. Claudius says, pluck them asunder. In other words, drag them apart. So he's calling to his courtiers to break up this fight. Don't just let them kill each other. And Gertrude cries out, Hamlet, Hamlet. Now, admittedly, she hasn't seen him in a while, but she's trying to get him back to his old self. Don't do anything stupid. And then sometimes there's a little direction for everyone there to say, gentlemen. So all the courtiers who are present are trying to appeal to their noble side. And even Horatio gets involved. He says, good, my lord, be quiet. Not shut up, although he should probably also shut up. But be quiet in the sense of be calm. Calm yourself, Hamlet. So they finally break him up, but Hamlet won't stop talking. And the question is, who's he talking to here? He might actually be talking to Horatio or even his mother. He says, why, I will fight with him upon this theme until my eyelids will no longer wag. I will fight with Laertes upon this theme, about this subject, in other words, Ophelia, until my eyelids will no longer wag, which means move or blink. So basically, until I die. And Gertrude asks, oh, my son, what theme? So what subject are you fighting with him about? And Hamlet says, I loved Ophelia. 40,000 brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, make up my sum. Oh, so it's a contest. So not even 40,000 brothers, with all their quantity of love, in other words, their combined amount of love, couldn't make up my sum, my total of love. So he's saying that he loved Ophelia more than 40,000 times more than Laertes. And then he challenges him. He says, what will thou do for her? Yeah, what would you do for her to show your love? And Claudius apparently has gone over to Laertes and start to calm him down. He says, oh, he is mad, Laertes. This guy's insane. Don't pay any attention to him. And Gertrude's trying to do the same thing to Hamlet. She says, for love of God, forbear him. Forbear him meaning leave him alone. Like, stop antagonizing this guy. But Hamlet doesn't listen. He says, swoons, show me what thou do. Swoons is another oath. It's another swear word. It's short for I swear by God's wounds. Show me what thou do. Thou do is short for thou wilt do or what you will do, what you would do for her. He says, would weep, would fight, would fast, would tear thyself, would drink up eisel, eat a crocodile. So there's this strange word, woot, not in our modern slangy sense of it. It's probably short for would thou, as in what would you do? Would you weep for her? Would you fight for her? Would you fast? In other words, would you starve yourself for her? Would tear thyself? Would you tear yourself to pieces? Would drink up eisel, eisel is vinegar. So could you just drink vinegar to show how much you loved her? Eat a crocodile? They're actually incredibly over the top, as though he's mocking how outsized Laertes' demonstration of grief is. But Hamlet says, I'll do it. Dost thou come here to whine? To outface me with leaping in her grave? Man, he's really taunting him here. Something has hit a nerve. Now, obviously, Hamlet didn't know Ophelia was dead until two minutes ago, so he's probably in a pretty bad state. 
but he's really going after Laertes. Are you coming here to whine? So he's mocking Laertes' grief as whining, to outface me, which is a way to say confront or defy me with leaping in her grave, as though he leaped in her grave as an insult to Hamlet in particular. Be buried quick with her, and so will I. In other words, if you're going to be buried alive with her, I will too. And if thou prate of mountains, let them throw millions of acres on us, till our ground, singeing his pate against the burning zone, make Asa like a wart. If thou prate of mountains, prate means babble or chatter about mountains, let them throw millions of acres on us. So he's taking Laertes' image of piling up dirt until they form a mountain and blowing it up even more. Till our ground, singeing his pate against the burning zone. Remember, pate means head, so here it means the top of the mountain. And the burning zone is sort of the sun's outer reaches. So they should build up a mountain so tall that its top is singed by the sun, and the mountain should make Asa like a wart. Laertes already mentioned Pelion and Olympus, these famous Greek mountains, while Hamlet has another one, Asa. So he says it should be so big that it should make Asa look like a wart. It's clear that he's almost doing a parody of Laertes' grief demonstrations. And he ends with, Nay, and thou'lt mouth? I'll rant as well as thou. Hamlet used that word mouth in his speech to the actors way back in Act 3, Scene 2. It means to overact a speech. So if you'll mouth, if you'll do that pompous or affected speech, I'll rant as well as thou. I'll go on as well as you can. Like, you think you're the only one who can do this? This is almost a throwback to that being and seeming image from the very beginning of the play. Hamlet almost sees Laertes as another one of these seemers, someone who wants to demonstrate how sad he is. And Hamlet's the only one who feels real emotion. But he's very cruel here. And Gertrude is the one who shuts him down. And she shuts him down using the verse. She finishes his verse line, which cuts him off. She says, this is mere madness. And thus a while the fit will work on him. So mere isn't our modern sense of just. Here it means complete or total madness. But of course you get the fun alliterative moment of mere madness. And thus a while the fit will work on him. He's going to be suffering this fit of madness for a while. But good news. Anon, as patient as the female dove when that her golden couplets are disclosed, his silence will sit drooping. So anon meaning soon or shortly. As patient, as calm as the female dove when that her golden couplets are disclosed. Golden couplets are a pair of chicks that are covered in golden fuzz, and disclosed means hatched. So he'll be as calm as a mother dove with some babies under her. So soon his silence will sit drooping. Drooping in the sense of calm or even exhausted. There was this thought that mother doves cared for their young for so long after they were born that they basically exhausted and starved themselves. So that's what she's saying, that Hamlet is going to burn himself out on this madness, and in the end he's going to be quiet and calm. But Hamlet won't let her have the last word. Now he finishes her verse line. He says, Hear you, sir. What is the reason that you use me thus? Use me thus here meaning treat me this way. Although I wouldn't say that he's treating Hamlet that badly under the circumstances. Hamlet has a real victim complex here. He says, I loved you ever. Ever meaning always or even still. Like I've always loved you. But then that verse line is split right in half and he finishes, But it is no matter. Let Hercules himself do what he may. The cat will mew and dog will have his day. So it turns out that love doesn't even matter. Let Hercules himself do what he may. So even if the strongest man who ever lived does what he can, the cat will mew and dog will have his day. Dog will have his day is a very famous expression now. But what this line seems to mean is that these noisy dummies are going to make their noise. He's comparing Laertes and all these other people he sees as fake mourners to cats that are meowing in the night and won't shut up. And dog will have his day. Like even dogs get to win. There's almost a sense of resignation here. Like no matter what he does, the bad guys are going to win. And notice that it's a rhyming couplet again. That's the line that Hamlet exits on. He's trying to wrap it up as much as he can. And then he runs off. And Claudius can't have this guy running around. He says, I pray thee, good Horatio, wait upon him. He wants to make sure that somebody's watching over Hamlet. He says, I pray thee, I ask you, Horatio, wait upon him. In other words, attend to him. Make sure he isn't alone in the castle. Again, chaos is starting to bust up the king's plans. He wasn't ready for Hamlet to be back yet. 
So he has to try and fix them here as best he can. He says to Laertes, strengthen your patience in our last night's speech. Like keep your patience strong by remembering that speech I told to you yesterday. In other words, remember our plan. You have to be the patient one here. You have to put up with this so you can get your real revenge. We'll put the matter to the present push. We'll put the matter. In other words, we'll put this plot to the present push, to an immediate test. Like it's going to happen any second now. There's also some great alliteration there with put and present and push. And before he finishes with Laertes, he turns to his wife and says, Good Gertrude, set some watch over your son, which is a really cold line. I mean, number one, it's almost like he's blaming her for Hamlet being out of control, but he also calls him your son. Clearly, he's all out of patience, and he's starting to blame her, too. This is maybe another crack in the facade of their marriage. And then he turns back to Laertes to finish what he was saying. He says, this grave shall have a living monument. It's a pretty ironic juxtaposition of grave and living, but here it means long-lasting or enduring. And monument is the word for a memorial or a gravestone on the site. Now, he might be referring to the actual gravestone, but what he's probably referring to is Laertes' revenge on Hamlet. That's really going to be the enduring memorial to Ophelia's death. And then he wants to make sure the scene only ends when he wants it to end. So he has his own rhyming couplet. He says, An hour of quiet shortly shall we see. Not a literal hour, but a time or a period of quiet. And not just a lack of noise, of calm, of an undisturbed state. Everything has been all over the place lately, but a time of calm is coming shortly. Till then, in patience, our proceeding be. But until that moment, our proceeding, our actions, how we go forward with this, has to be in patience. We can't make any mistakes here. And you also get some fun alliteration with patience and proceeding. So after this very strange scene, tempers are even higher than they were before. If anything, Shakespeare's managed to escalate the stakes even more. Laertes is somehow madder at Hamlet than he was before this scene. And Hamlet is now distraught, knowing that Ophelia is dead too. So when we get to the next scene, the last scene of the play, something is going to have to break. That's the end of part eight. Come back for part nine, the final part of Hamlet. We're going to see who lives, who dies, how they live and die, and maybe most importantly, what the final result of all this revenging is. In the meantime, you can help to make this podcast possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. I really appreciate it. Bye.